Hello, and welcome to Partners in Diplomacy, a podcast series exploring the service, sacrifice, and adventure of life as a Foreign Service family member. I'm your host, Bonnie Miller, and we're joined by Johanna Cleese, wife of FSO Brent Meyer, who has accompanied him to posts in six countries over the past 12 years. Welcome, Johanna, and thank you for sharing your stories with us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's start with your childhood. You were born in 1984 in the northwest suburbs of Chicago. What was life like for you growing up there in the 80s and 90s? Yeah, I grew up in Schaumburg, Illinois, and had a really typical suburban upbringing and, yeah, a great childhood. So where did you attend university and what did you study? I did two years at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Since I'm from Illinois, I ended up having to transfer because I was paying through the nose. (laughs) So I transferred down to University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, and I studied speech and hearing science. How did you get interested in international travel and work? To hear my mom tell it, I learned about the Peace Corps in the second grade and just came home one day from school and said, I'm going to join the Peace Corps. I don't remember that, but I always loved learning other languages. In fact, when I was a kid, I learned to say one phrase in as many languages as I could find. So I think I ended up with 11 different languages. I learned to say, tomorrow's my birthday. And I did a study abroad in high school, which is where I guess I really ended up being interested in international studies, relations, living abroad. So your interests took hold very early. Uh, Where did you do your study abroad for high school? I'm from Schaumburg, Illinois, and I went to Schaumburg, Germany, which is northwest Germany. So a sister city exchange Interesting. So you finally joined the Peace Corps. So tell us about your experiences in Baku, Azerbaijan from 2009 to 2010. And did you speak the Azerbaijani language? I actually got to Azerbaijan in 2008 and did an intensive language program with the rest of the Peace Corps volunteers. After about three months, we moved out to where we'd be living. So I lived six hours west of Baku in a tiny town called Agjabedi and lived with a host family for two years. And my Azerbaijani language skills ended up being pretty good. I learned to gossip with the ladies pretty good. (laughs) So... Yeah. And so what were your Peace Corps jobs when you were living in that little village? I was an English language teacher. I was there primarily to teach English teachers new teaching methods. But I would say I did a lot more girls and women women's empowerment activities. And I think just by being there as a young woman on my own, that was sort of leading by example. And I think it was important to me to be seen not only by the young women, but also by the young men that I was teaching because, you know, it's still a very culturally conservative area and they will grow up and have daughters. And I hope that they remember that there was this Peace Corps volunteer at one point who was able to live on her own and be independent. And I hope they do right by their daughters one day. And by their wives. So you were a real role model for the girls and also for the boys in respecting young women too. I hope. So how, when, and where did you meet your husband, Brent Meyer? And when did you get married? And was he already in the Foreign Service by then? 
Brent loves when I tell this story because the truth is that I picked him up. It was a year into my Peace Corps service. I was at a conference for English language teachers and the U.S. Embassy had a booth that had a lot of resources and other information available to us and there was nobody manning the booth. By the end of the conference, there was someone there and it happened to be Brent and I saw him and I thought, oh, he's a good looking guy. So I introduced myself and asked for his number. and We got together. I learned about the Foreign Service really for the first time. I didn't know anyone else prior to that who was in the State Department. And that was his second tour. He had been in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia prior to that. After Baku, you went to Tunisia in 2011 for Brent to take Arabic. And were you able to study language there too? And also, did you do volunteer work in Tunis? Our time in Tunisia was really special. We were newlyweds. We had done a quick courthouse ceremony, and I did not know what I was going to do when we arrived in Tunis. So there's a a language school there through the State Department, or was. I think it's shut down now, but it was a great place out in Sidi Boussaid, which is a lovely part of town and a really awesome old villa. And there were about 15 State Department Foreign Service officers at the language school, and they had a ton of space. So the director was very kind and let me have my own tutor. I paid my own tutor there, but I got to like have breaks with everybody and just feel like one of the crowd. So I did study Arabic there, and that was an amazing opportunity. And you asked about volunteering, which near and dear to my heart after the Peace Corps, I found the American Corner in downtown Tunis and was able to go there. That's a State Department-funded program. It's a library that has English language conversation clubs and books and guest speakers. And I help set up a volunteer club at the American Corner. So that got you into American embassy-sponsored projects and cultural projects as well, which was good background for the rest of your career. So tell us about Brent's posting in Basra and how you joined him in 2013 and got the position as the first community liaison officer at that high-risk and unaccompanied post. What were the main challenges that the CLO encountered in Basra, and what kinds of programs did you initiate to address them? So the State Department has a really cool program where families and spouses, whoever, can shelter in place. It's called safe havening, where I had planned to stay in Tunisia while Brent was going to do a year in Basra, Iraq. I was ready to live there in Tunis. I got a paid position at the American Corner. And I was about a month into that when the really tragic events of Benghazi took place. And three or four days after Benghazi, the embassy in Tunis was attacked. It was a very scary day. I remember driving home through black smoke, being evacuated 48 hours later. I never did go back to Tunis. Someone else ended up packing us out. But miracle of miracles, there was a community liaison officer position created in Basra already. So I was able to interview and get interim secret, top secret clearance and do all the training associated with going to a high threat post. I got the visa for Iraq all within five months, which is really an amazing turnaround time. So I showed up on Valentine's Day, 2013. So Brent and I hadn't seen each other for six months or more. And I remember getting there and thinking, what have I done? This is like a moonscape. It was dusty and hot and everyone lives in shipping containers. So it was just really bleak the first day, but got to know everyone there really quickly. And just, it was an amazing community. People were really excited to 
have someone there that was meant to organize some fun. People work really hard in the high threat posts, unaccompanied posts. And we did trivia weekly. And I set up a lot of sporting, you know, tournaments and things, soccer tournaments and 5k runs and ping pong tournaments, CrossFit competitions. We got um, some local artists out to the consulate to do, you know, sort of a bazaar so that people could bring things back with them from Iraq. It was really special. I think the camaraderie that people feel in a place that's pretty, quote unquote, miserable is really great. And so actually Basra is one of my favorite posts so far. So that was really special. And as you said, people do get closer because they're isolated there and there's danger all around and there's safety in the community. What about the officers' communication with their families at home since they weren't allowed to bring spouses or children with them? Yeah, it's critical that people are able to stay in touch. And yeah, it's tough. Their internet is hit or miss. And The time change is difficult if you have family that's back in the States. A lot of times people choose to do an unaccompanied tour when their kids are kind of young, so they're missing some big milestones, but that pays off because later then hopefully they don't have to do that again. But I know that people just tried to keep a weekly date. They emailed a lot and did the best they could. They Luckily, the State Department does give people really nice vacation packages. People were able to get out three times and not even use their own leave. So they were still earning annual leave and able to spend good chunks of time with their families back in the States. So from the frying pan into the fire, you moved from southern Iraq to the huge embassy in Baghdad from 2013 to 2014, where you were the only CLO and very few people were allowed outside of the green zone. So what was life like during that year? Baghdad is a huge embassy, definitely in the top five size-wise in the world. It is a beautiful facility. The new embassy compound has green spaces and really nice uh, embassy with beautiful apartment buildings. So no more of these shipping containers. Has a couple of gyms, an indoor pool, an outdoor pool. I mean, it's a beautiful facility. But even with all that space and with everything that's nice and, you know, a nice lawn that we actually did some driving competitions on for um, like golfing competitions, you people go stir crazy. When we got there in 2013 into 2014, things with ISIS were really heating up and we had less and less mobility. So people weren't even ready, weren't able to really get out into the green zone at all. I mean, outside the embassy compound into the, it used to be that you could visit other embassies and go to restaurants in the green zone, but that really ended and people started to go pretty stir crazy. Honestly, people work really hard. It's a really strategic place in our foreign policy. People are working long hours because their family's not there. And some people cope in maybe less than healthy ways. So my job as Chloe was to check in on those people try to create community, try to bring people out of their offices or out of their apartments, whatever it was, get them moving and active. We did that with a lot. I mean, I did that. There was I was the only clo there that year, unfortunately. But we had a lot of activities and I think it was a good year. <laughs> so it was kind of a safe bubble where people worked hard, but you also introduced some opportunities for play since they didn't have their family with them, but also must have been very strange because here they were at an embassy reporting on the situation in Iraq and yet couldn't get out to see the actual situation in Iraq. 
it was very bizarre. People would ask often if we could get out and go see some of the huge, important landmarks in Karbala, for instance, is a very important part of Islam, one of the third holiest cities, I believe. You know, that was crazy. That was never going to happen. But it almost feels like part of this lifestyle is getting to enjoy the culture that you're in. And we really didn't get a chance to get out. And the Iraqis that we knew were the Iraqis working in the embassy who were awesome and lovely. We would have loved to meet their families and spend more time together, but they had to get out early to, to get home before curfews. And, you know, when things started to get more dangerous, it wasn't really safe for them to come either. So it was strange to be in this place, in this bubble, like you say, and not really feel like you're in Iraq at all. And all of these dangerous posts, they were unaccompanied posts, but you were able to go because you had a job, but of course you had no children. So where and when were your children born? After our time in Baghdad, Brent had got another assignment for Berlin, Germany. But before we went to Berlin, from 2014 to summer 2015, we were in the U.S. in Northern Virginia at the Foreign Language Institute doing language training. And I got to even do German language training, which was awesome. As I mentioned, I did a study abroad in high school. So I had very fluid German, but I was able to iron out some of the grammatical issues in that time. That's just a huge perk of the Foreign Service is that spouses can take language when their officer spouses are in training. So that's great. I ended up having our first son, Max, in March of 2015. And four months later, we were off to Berlin. So how was your posting in Berlin from 2015 to 2018? And did you work there? And did you have more children there? Yes, I had more children. <laughs> Being in Berlin was amazing. I didn't even really think about working at that point because I was really interested in trying to study. So I got enrolled in a master's program actually at Humboldt University in religion and culture. I was really excited about that. Actually being at FSI, the Language Institute had helped me get the score I needed, get my German up to snuff. And I was really excited about that opportunity. But midway through our time, I found out I was pregnant with the twins, with our twins. And that just sort of put a wrench in everything. We kind of quit traveling. It just got to be a lot. So with three babies under two years old, there's no time for work or anything else. So you have a boy and a girl twin. And were they born in Berlin or did you go back to the States for their birth? No, we stayed in Berlin. I felt comfortable with my German. I would say I'm fluent in German. So it, that wasn't something I was worried about. And it was a pretty good experience on the whole. Oh, they have midwives. So I got someone to come to the house and help me with the babies for about three months after they were born. It was amazing. Different system, as you see, and different benefits and all different things in Germany and the European Union than what we have in the United States for new parents. From Berlin, you transferred to Dubai, and you've been there since 2019 with your three small children. And so are you working there now? And what are the highlights and challenges of living in Dubai? Dubai is by far the easiest place we've ever lived. You can get anything, anytime for a price. When we first got here, the twins were still small. They were two and a half. So I stayed home with them the first year. And then we put them into preschool just at the school right next door, which is very convenient. So I was able to get a job and I'm working now at the health unit doing admin work. And it's great. 
So you're really an example of how the embassy can provide jobs for spouses of people who are posted there. Yeah, it's not for everybody. I would say they have a lot of opportunities if you're open-minded. It's a lot of admin work. Were other people able to get jobs within the embassy? And also you had mentioned that this kind of sparked your interest in HR work. Yes, the job that I took originally was in HR, and I really loved that position. And I think that when my husband, who's a few years older than me, when he retires, that I may turn around and become the officer, perhaps. That would be great. How does that work? You would be like a specialist officer? Yeah, perhaps. I really liked HR, and I would want to stay doing HR so I could really specialize and get to know the policy in and out. And they do have that HR specialists. They have IT specialists and general service officer specialists. So you can definitely pick a path and stick with it if the generalist option isn't for you. Interesting. So has your foreign service experience given you any opportunities, either personal or professional, that you wouldn't have had if you had stayed in the United States? It's such a good question. I think that my life in the Foreign Service is one huge opportunity. I really think that all the experiences we've had living overseas, exploring other cultures, all the exchange that we've shared with other people is just amazing. And, you know, some of the more tangible things are the language training opportunities I had, or, you know, living in a place like Germany where the kids' early childhood education cost us $30 a month for basically amazing Montessori programs. And I was able to go to university there for a time for free. It was amazing. Granted, that's not everywhere, but this lifestyle, if you're open to it, can offer you a lot. I've had a lot of opportunity. So I want you to continue with that question. You had talked about the Montessori for your kids and also the opportunity for you to go to university in Germany. So if you'd like to add to how your foreign service experiences has given you opportunities, personal and professional, that you wouldn't have had if you had stayed in the United States. We talked about the different employment opportunities for spouses, and I think it's really awesome that I've been able to pay into a retirement plan, and I have been able to build up my skills that are going to transfer well, whether we, whether I do join the Foreign Service myself later, or you know, if I work outside of here, I've, I've been working professionally, and I think that the Foreign Service does take care of spouses. That's a really good lesson. So it sounds like your 12 years in the Foreign Service has really enriched you personally and professionally and paved the way for a career in the future. So do you have any final thoughts or lessons learned or words of wisdom or advice for spouses whose partners are considering a career in the Foreign Service? And what would be realistic expectations of a career in the Foreign Service for a family? I was lucky in that I met Brent when he was already in the Foreign Service. So I could go in eyes wide open, you know, by choosing him, I was choosing the Foreign Service and this lifestyle. You know, that doesn't happen for everybody. And I just think everybody should apply. If it's something you think about, go ahead, apply. It takes a long time to get in. But before you join, I think communication is everything. Like just really talking about the ins and outs, what would be, you know, a red line where you say, okay, we want to be done. We have to go. I think everyone needs to sort of explore what they're really up for 
And whether they want to raise their kids all over the world or not, this life is amazing. It can be really amazing, but it's not always glamorous. And the day-to-day can be hard. Work is still work. It can be a grind. And on some days, I miss my friends and family so much. And most days, I miss Target. And I miss holidays at home where everybody's doing it the way we do it. So yeah, there are hard parts, but I wouldn't change it at all. I think that you have to be, you learn flexibility in this life for sure. I know from my time in the Peace Corps, but just also from this, these years doing this life, because it's not easy that I can trust myself to get through anything and through any of the challenges because I've, I've impressed myself with my adaptability sometimes. And I think we're teaching our kids flexibility. We're teaching our kids open-mindedness by being out in the world like this. And I think I would say, if you do join the foreign service, be ready to be, yeah, like instant friends with people. It's something that I love. I think looking at my friends at home, I'm not sure how you make friends anymore as an adult. And in this life, when you show up to a new post, everybody is friendly. And when when we've been here for a year or two, then the people coming in, like you have instant friends. I think that's like a huge part of this life is that everyone knows that the, the boat we're in and takes care of each other. So I guess just be just be friendly and open minded. Okay, great words of wisdom. Johanna, on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your wide-ranging foreign service experience and insight. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you are curious to learn more about the lives of foreign service family members, subscribe and listen to additional episodes in our Partners in Diplomacy series. To learn more about the experiences of America's diplomats and diplomacy, visit our website at adst.org or check us out on Twitter and Facebook. The Partners in Diplomacy podcast is funded by the Una Chapman Cox Foundation. Our theme music is We Are One by Scott Holmes. Our assistant producer is Sumaya Ishrat. Our producers are James Fowler and Mark Rincon. Our audio engineering and post-production are provided by James Fowler and Post Productions. My name is Bonnie Miller. Until next time.